Good evening. The truth in the Boston Marathon bombing, more Trump policies quashed by President Biden, Israel, and Google, a software engineer, speaks out to WBAI, and the court hands the mother of Eric Garner a disappointing decision. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Friday, October 15th, 2021. The Biden administration said today it'll turn next to the U.S. Supreme Court in another attempt to halt a Texas law that's banned most abortions since September. The move comes as the Texas clinics are running out of avenues to stop the GOP-engineered law that bans abortions once cardiac activity is detected about six weeks into a pregnancy, but long before most women know they're pregnant. In the meantime, Texas women have turned to abortion clinics in neighboring states, some driving hours through the middle of the night, including patients as young as 12 years old. The latest defeat for clinics came Thursday night when a federal appeals panel in New Orleans and a two-to-one decision allowed the restrictions to remain in place for a third time in the last several weeks alone. The Supreme Court is yet to rule on the constitutionality of the Texas law while allowing it to take effect. And the Supreme Court heard arguments this week in the case of Boston Marathon bomber Jokar Tsarnaev, who was given the death sentence for his role in the 2013 terror attack, which killed three people and injured hundreds. United States Deputy Solicitor General Eric Fagan told the court the jury was correct in sentencing Tsarnaev to death. He was 20 years old at the time of the bombing. After watching video of respondent by himself personally placing a shrapnel bomb behind a group of children at the Boston Marathon, the jury in this case returned a nuanced verdict unanimously recommending capital punishment for that specific deliberate act. The Court of Appeals should have let that verdict stand. And as U.S. Deputy Solicitor General Eric Fagan, defense attorneys had argued during the sentencing phase of the trial that Zolkar Tsarnaev was unduly influenced by his brother Tamerlane, who had apparently become radicalized after a trip to his home country of Chechnya. The district court had refused to allow the jury to see evidence that Tamerlane had been involved in the brutal stabbing murder of three friends at the home of one who was a small-scale marijuana dealer. Tamerlane died in the hail of bullets after an attempt to escape police after the marathon bombing. Defense attorney Ginger Anders. The district court violated the Eighth Amendment by categorically excluding evidence that Tamerlan robbed and murdered three people as an act of jihad. That evidence was central to the mitigation case. The, intent, the defense's entire argument was that Jokar was less culpable because Tamerlan indoctrinated him and then led the bombings. Tamerlan's commission of the murder supplied the key indoctrinating event by demonstrating to Jokar that Tamerlan had irrevocably committed himself to violent jihad. That would have had a profound effect on Jokar, who was already enthralled to his brother. The government argued that Tamerlan was merely bossy. The Waltham evidence showed that wasn't true. The government argued that Tamerlan did no more than send Jokar a few extremist articles. The Waltham evidence showed that wasn't true. The government argued that the brothers were equal partners because Tamerlan had not succeeded in jihad until Jokar joined him. The Waltham evidence showed that wasn't true either. But the defense couldn't make any of those points. A sentencing proceeding where the defense is not permitted to make its fundamental mitigation argument and to rebut the government's aggravation arguments cannot result in a reliable and constitutional death sentence. And that's attorney Ginger Anders. Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan said the jury should have been allowed to decide if the evidence of the three murders proved Tamerlane was their mastermind over his younger brother, Jokar. But once the district court says this is obviously related to his uh, sentencing defense. In other words, it goes to his own culpability. It essentially confirms, if it were true, 
the mitigating factor that he was unduly influenced by his brother. At that point, it's the job of the jury, isn't it, to decide on the reliability of the evidence, to decide whether it's strong evidence or weak evidence, that Tamerlan, in fact, played a leading role in those other gruesome murders? Assuming knowledge, then I, I think... Mean, I don't even know that knowledge is all that important, because even if he didn't know, the fact that his brother was the kind of person who played this leading role in these gruesome murders tells you something about this, the role he might have played in this murder, irrespective of knowledge. But at any rate, let's just assume that he had knowledge. I don't think the evidence really would have added much to the mix of information we already had about, for example, who planned the Boston Marathon bombing. I mean, think about was- what you're just saying, Mr. Fagan. This court let in evidence about Tamerlane poking somebody in the chest. This court let in evidence about Tamerlane shouting at people. This court let in evidence about Tamerlane assaulting a former student, a, a fellow student, all because that showed what kind of person Tamerlane was and what kind of influence he might have had over his brother. And yet this court kept out evidence that Tamerlane led a, 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 a crime that, com- that resulted in three murders. Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan sparring with government lawyer Eric Fagan. If the court decides to reinstate the uh, death penalty, Joe Carr would be spared for now. Unlike his predecessor, President Biden has halted all federal executions. And the United States has reversed another Trump policy decision, winning election to the Geneva-based Human Rights Council, joining 17 other nations in uncontested votes yesterday. State Department spokesperson Ned Price. Today, I'm pleased to note the United States was successfully elected to the UN Human Rights Council. Uh, We want to be at the table. We need to be at the table Uh, in order to uh, be engaged, whether it's with the WHO, whether it's with the Human Rights Council, whether it's uh, within the Paris context, whether it's within other uh, realms that we've talked about. uh, If we are to help shape institutions to help them deliver on their highest aspirations, which is what we intend to do with the Human Rights Council, to help them promote the values, the interests that the United States and our partners share, we need to be there. Yes, we have concerns with the Council. We will vigorously oppose the Council's disproportionate attention on Israel, which includes the Council's only standing agenda item targeting a single country. We also will press against the election of countries with egregious human rights records. And that State Department spokesperson, Ned Price, the Human Rights Council was created in 2006 to replace a commission discredited because of some members' poor rights records. But the new council soon came to face similar criticism, including that rights abusers sought to protect themselves and their allies. And later on in this broadcast, we're going to be hearing from a Google software engineer who has been uh, whistleblowing along with others, a plan by Google to help the Israeli military with uh, high-tech uh, software and other high-tech information and equipment. During a briefing with reporters yesterday, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki was asked if the administration is concerned about setting a president by handing over information to the committee investigating the attacks on the U.S. Capitol. This president has no intention to lead an insurrection on our nation's capital. I um, anticipated that would be your answer almost word for word. No, oh, um, good. But part of, I mean... You can understand that you're opening potentially a Pandora's box here. Actually, we don't, we don't see it that way. I understand why you're asking this question. Yeah. We talked about this a little bit last week as well. 
I think it is ultimately important for people to understand and remember that January 6th was an incredibly dark day, one of the darkest days in our democracy. There was an insurrection on our nation's capital. What we're talking about here is getting to the bottom of that. Shouldn't everybody want to get to the bottom of that? Democrats, Republicans, people who have no political affiliation whatsoever. I will reiterate that we're going to assess and review, as is standard in the process, the documents and uh, any efforts to exert executive privilege on a case-by-case basis. And we'll provide you updates on those as those processes proceed. And we will continue, as it relates to executive privilege for other issues, to evaluate that on a case-by-case basis, as every White House has in the past. But I think if you look back at past presidents, Democratic and Republican, there isn't really a precedent for what we're talking about with this select committee and what they're trying to get to the bottom of. And the uniqueness of that, I think, is important context. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, Trump reportedly told aides who've been subpoenaed by the committee not to comply with the demands to testify and turn over documents. One of the Trump aides, Steve Bannon, missed the deadline on Thursday, prompting the committee to announce a vote next Tuesday to move forward with charges of criminal contempt. And Google and Amazon workers are up in arms about a plan for the tech giant to provide high-tech cloud services to the Israeli government and possibly its military. On Tuesday, The Guardian published an anonymous statement which began, quote, we are writing as Google and Amazon employees of conscience from diverse backgrounds. We believe the technology we build should work to serve and uplift people everywhere, including all of our users. As workers who keep these companies running, we are morally obligated to speak out against violations of these core values. For this reason, we're compelled to call on the leaders of Amazon and Google to pull out of Project Nimbus and cut all ties with the Israeli military. We are anonymous because we fear retaliation. But Gabriel Schubner, a software engineer for Google and one of the signers of the statement, came forward for WBAI today. Google and Amazon put pen to paper and signed a deal with the Israeli government and military for $1.2 billion. This deal is known as Project Nimbus. The deal cedes Google and Amazon's ability to deny services to any portion of the government, uh, meaning that the deal inherently includes the Israeli military, and the Israeli military is one of the overseers of the contract. The contract is also supposedly immune to employee protests in that there are clauses that purport to deny Google and Amazon the ability to pull out of the contract. Google has pulled out of contracts before, both with the Pentagon as well as the Chinese government for Project Dragonfly. We believe that this is still possible. What was Project Dragonfly and what, are, what project are we talking about here? Project Dragonfly was a project internal to Google to build a version of the search engine that conforms with Chinese censorship policies. It was subject to a similar campaign of employee protests and ultimately dropped. And what does this project do? This project is to provide cloud services, meaning that Google and Amazon are building data centers in Israel. Um, There will be highly secure data centers that will offer Google Cloud and Amazon Web Services to the Israeli government. We don't know exactly what it will be used for. Part of the problem with this contract is the lack of transparency. Essentially, there's no ability for Google and Amazon to guarantee that this technology will not be used in service of human rights violations. What is cloud services and what's the problem? What could be the potential problem with that? Cloud services includes everything from data storage to computer computational power and resources to APIs that would allow you to train advanced artificial intelligence. While we don't know what the services will be used for, and we do know that they're extremely powerful. And we know that the Israeli military is illegally surveilling Palestinians. 
we know that the Israeli military has been accused of committing human rights violations and war crimes. So our position is that we cannot provide these services to the Israeli military without any oversight or guarantee that they won't be used to harm really our own users. I've heard of them tracking people and telling them to get out of a building before they blew it up just to show them they could do it. Palestinians live under a system of very unequal laws. Palestinians live with heavily restricted movement. Um, they are not allowed their own self-determination. And when you provide powerful technology to an organization that is enforcing that, you're contributing to this for these forms of oppression. What happened to the days when we said that the internet was going to liberate humankind? <laughs> Good question. I mean, you know, in some sense, that has always been a little bit facetious. There's a history of engagement between military and technology development. But the internet has also offered a lot of promise and new potentials for distributed forms of organization, for connecting people. And we believe that uh, technology companies, which are really some of the most powerful organizations in the world right now, should really be focusing on the parts of technology that can uplift people and can make the world a better place rather than seeking profit over human rights by pursuing military contracts. Gabriel Schubner, a software engineer for Google, he came forward to WBAI today. Nearly a 1,000 anonymous signatories at Amazon and more than 600 at Google have joined the call. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. A historic court inquiry into the circumstances surrounding Eric Garner's death in an NYPD chokehold will be held online. A Manhattan judge ruled today, outraging his mother, who has demanded more information on the killing for years. Gwen Carr urged Manhattan Supreme Court Justice Erica Edwards to postpone the inquiry until it's possible to hold the proceedings in person. And I'm so disappointed that it will be virtual because all the hard work that has been put into it to have this judicial inquiry. Virtual is not going to be anything near what it would be if it was in person. We want transparency. And, and there's so many difficult things that could happen with the virtual, the sound, the getting kicked off. I know it's not going to be like a regular hearing. But the judge did not rule in our favor when it came to having a in-court hearing. And she gave her reasons, but we figured being that, and we know the concerns, but we thought being that it is still COVID season, that she would defer it to a further time when it's safe for all of us to go back into the courtrooms. But she decided to go on with the inquiry, even though I spoke with her. I think this hearing is very important because it speaks volume to this has never happened before. And this could set the tone for other cases. And I just still feel like it should have been in the courtroom rather than virtual. But we're going with it. Gwen Carr. Edwards said the party's safety and efficiency were the factors behind her decision. Numerous court hearings have been held virtually since early last year due to the coronavirus pandemic. Carr and attorney Gideon Oliver also said they haven't given up on eliciting testimony from Mayor Bill de Blasio and Police Commissioner Dermot Shea. The mayor was a part of this from the very beginning when my son was murdered. So he knew all the details. He could answer all the questions that would be put to him. But 
he was eliminated from the equation. So we'll just have to go with what we have. We have very astute lawyers who will pull the answers out of the witnesses that we need to know for the transparency that we need, that we have been lacking for the last seven years. We think those witnesses are, are essential to understanding and to getting transparency around, around key issues. When the court ruled against us, we previewed for the judge that we think that the evidence that will be elicited may give us a grounds to re-ask for those witnesses. And the court said at that time, you know, she can't say she ruled for us, but that we're free to make that application. So we have the witnesses as it stands. Ms. Carr said we're going to examine those witnesses closely and rigorously, but we may be back before the court with a motion for reconsideration. And that's Attorney Gideon Oliver. The hearing is set to begin October 25th and will feature testimony from high-level NYPD brass about the response to the horrific video showing Officer Daniel Pantaleo choking Garner as he said, I can't breathe. And yellow cab drivers led by the New York City Taxi Workers Alliance have been protesting outside City Hall for over three weeks. They want Mayor Bill de Blasio to adopt their alternative plan for medallion debt relief. Olivia Ben-Simon reports. Jean-François Fritz has been driving a yellow cab for almost 40 years. He bought his medallion in 1984 for $120,000, he says. Back then, he didn't think that all of these years and thousands of dollars later, he'd still be trying to pay back those loans. But now he's on the verge of losing everything. You pay, you pay, you pay, and the money never goes down. I've been on the road driving since um, nearly four years trying to feed the Razor family and at the same time still be responsible to pay a loan to the bank. He thought this would be a lucrative career and the investment was worth it, but that's not what happened. He tosses and turns at night, worrying about what might happen if he misses even one payment to the bank. They're going to say, well, you cannot pay, so we're going to foreclose on you and we're going to take the medallion and then you're going to, whatever you have, we're going to go after that, then you'll be You'll be on the street after like paying them for so many years, which is when you work for nothing. A taxi medallion is basically what allows drivers to pick people up around the city. The price of the medallion has been rising for decades and was valued at about $1 million in 2014 when the bubble burst. Since then, the medallion's values plummeted and is now worth only about $100,000. In 2019, New York held congressional hearings on the crisis where leaders like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez expressed their concern about the crisis after a slew of driver suicides. They are a direct consequence of the neglect of a vulnerable community in New York City. Earlier this year, Mayor Bill de Blasio announced a $65 million taxi medallion relief plan to help drivers out of their debt that would be funded with leftover federal COVID-19 money. Under the plan, the city would give drivers up to $29,000 in interest-free loans to restructure their debt with the bank. But members of the New York Taxi Worker Alliance say that's not nearly enough. They found that on average, taxi drivers owed $550,000 and that most had an additional $25,000 credit card debt on top of that. Taxi drivers have been outside City Hall 24-7 for the past two weeks, waiting for de Blasio and the TLC to meet their demands for debt relief. Members of the Alliance say they're ready for a hunger strike if that doesn't happen. The union proposal, backed by several politicians, including Senator Chuck Schumer, would call on lenders to restructure the medallion debt to $145,000 with $800 monthly payments. 
The union say that would be more manageable for the drivers compared to paying $2,000 a month under the city's plan. My dad was one of the guys who would tell you, buy a medallion, because it made you a small business owner. Kabir Sancho Prasad's dad always believed the city would show up for him. He'd moved from Guyana and imagined a better life in New York for himself and his family. When it hit a million dollars, he thought, man, I'm going to be okay now. I'm going to be I'm going to be finding part of middle class. I'm going to be as good as when I was in thir- my 30s. In 2014, just as the price of the medallion reached its peak, ride-hailing apps like Uber and Lyft started flooding the streets. The competition made business for taxi drivers that much more difficult. The ease and perception of safety of the rideshare apps detracted people from taking yellow cabs. After the bubble burst, Kabir's dad was stuck trying to pay all of his loans while competing with the apps. All of the money he had, he'd put into that medallion. And then, in the summer of 2017... He had lost everything else already. That was the final blow for him. When he got the foreclosure notice... Kabir said that the notice put him over the edge. A month after the letter, he had a brain aneurysm and died in his home. Fast forward to 2019, and the COVID-19 pandemic has only made things worse for other taxi drivers. Every day, they're out in an empty city. Jean-Francois, who you heard from earlier, says he was desperate for any fare that would help him make his weekly and monthly payments. At the time, I was trying to make the money to pay the lenders. I couldn't make it. But Jean-Francois can't imagine the city just leaving taxi drivers like him to drown in debt, which is why he is rallying outside City Hall to make his voice heard. And in the meantime, he tries to put on a smile and continue to work to make ends meet. You cannot be rude to your customer to the fact that you have your own problem. So meanwhile, you're actually burning inside. So it's just like uh, the struggle of the New York taxi cab drivers (laughs) to hide the pain and you carry that on every single day. Drivers will be protesting outside City Hall 24-7 until the city reaches a proposal that meets their demands. They hope it will happen any day now. Olivia Ben-Simon, WBAI News, New York. Thanks, Olivia. And finally, Bill Clinton was said to be recovering from a urological infection today, and an aide to the former president says Clinton was in an intensive care section of the hospital, though not receiving ICU care. The aide didn't elaborate on the reason Clinton was in the ICU. He says Clinton had a urological infection that spread to his bloodstream, but is on the mend and never went into septic shock, a potentially life-threatening condition. Clinton, who is 75, was in good spirits and juggling books and watching TV coverage about his hospitalization. Hillary Clinton was with him in the hospital, though not his daughter, Chelsea Clinton. There was no immediate word on any timeline for his release. And that's some of the news for Friday, October 15, 2021. The news is produced by Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.